they're looking for, they win. Ignore them, you win. Welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm Ari Engel, the Director of Creative Community for Peace. Thank you so much for joining us today. Creative Community for Peace is a nonprofit entertainment industry organization comprised of prominent members of the entertainment community who have come together to promote the arts as a bridge to peace, to counter anti-Semitism within the entertainment industry, and to galvanize support against the cultural boycott of Israel. To learn more about our work and to support our work, please visit ccfpeace.com. That is ccfpeace.com com or creativecommunityforpeace.com. Uh, we are excited to celebrate our 10th anniversary this year, and you can check out some of our tremendous accomplishments on our website, from supporting hundreds of artists and bands when they book to perform in Israel, to avoid boycott pressure, to working with social media platforms like TikTok to better monitor their sites for anti-Semitic hate. Uh, we are glad to have all of you today in our public square as we present Dispelling the Myths, a fantastic educational series of conversations with some of the leading experts on the issues and challenges facing the Israel and the Jewish community today. Uh, today is the second installment of our Dispelling, Dispelling the Mist series. If you missed last week's conversation with Dan Diker about the BDS movement, I really urge all of you to please go back and listen to it on our YouTube page or on our podcast. Uh, you can find links to both on our website. Um, this week's uh, session really sets the table once again uh, with a discussion on anti-Semitism and its roots and its rise. As always, feel free to leave questions in the Q&A section of the chat, and I will try to get to as many of them as possible towards the end of the discussion. I ask that everyone just please leave the Q&A section for questions only and not general comments so we don't miss anything. Feel free to always uh, email us at info at if you do have just general questions for us. This week's guest is Ben M. Freeman. Ben was born in Scotland and is an author, internationally renowned educator and diversity, equity, inclusion specialist, focus, focusing on Jewish identity, combating Jewish hatred, and raising awareness of the Holocaust. He is the founder of the Modern Jewish Pride Movement. His first book, Jewish Pride, Rebuilding a People, which is fantastic, was released in February 2021 to great international acclaim. He is currently working on his much-anticipated follow-up, focusing on internalized anti-Jewishness due to be published next year in 2023. He joins us from Hong Kong. Welcome, Ben. Thank you so much. Sorry, I'm just getting my video started. Thank you so much for having me, everyone. I can see from the, the participants that we have people from all over the world here. So I'll say good afternoon, good evening, and good morning. And it is just around 7 a.m. Hong Kong time, so I hope you will permit me to be sipping a coffee <laughs> as we go through this. So I'm just going to share my screen. And as Ari said, I'll be running through a presentation. It's really designed to educate. This is, you know, I'm an educator. This is kind of the, uh, the angle in which I approach all my work. So this is really an educational journey we're going on together. I'm sure not all of the information will be new, but please still be open to learning and gaining different perspectives. And then, as Ari said, we will be having a discussion at the end. Great. Yeah, I'll pop up at the end and uh, we can go from there. Great. Just checking you can see my screen. Yep. Perfect. Perfect. So let's continue. Let's begin, everyone. So before we even begin discussing Jew hate, I think it's really important to root our conversation 
in the Jewish people. So often we are framed as passive actors in our own story and our history is reduced to what is done to us. And I think that is something we must reject. We are more than our experiences. We're more than what is done to us. We are an ancient civilization that has survived for thousands of years and we have beauty and diversity in our culture and that should be celebrated. So the Jewish people are a people, big P people. We're a nation, a civilization, an ethnicity, a religious group. And you see this as, you know, there's many descriptors here, right? Because we don't really fit into modern Western ideas of identity where, you know, the, the West really says you're a race, you're a religion and puts you in those boxes. We don't really fit into that. We're a little bit more complex because our roots are ancient. We're also, most importantly, indigenous to the Levant. Now, indigeneity is a very interesting concept, and it isn't necessarily about our direct ancestry. Of course, that does play a part for many people. It's really, though, about the culture, the civilization, the ethnicity, the connection to the land that we have. And the roots of that ethnicity is in the Levant. And this is archaeologically proven. This is, this is fact. Saying that, our history was interrupted about 2,000 or so years ago. And we were almost wholly ethnically cleansed from our indigenous homeland. So different diasporic Jewish communities emerged. And it's really important to remember that the Jews are the original diasporic people. I mean, the world, the word diaspora was created to describe our experience. So we have Ashkenazi, and they were Jews who settled in Central and Eastern Europe. We have Sephardic, they were Jews who settled in the Iberian Peninsula, so Spain and Portugal. We have Mizrahi, they were Jews who were never forced to leave the Middle East, and also they settled in North Africa. And of course, we have Bet Israel, the Ethiopian Jews. And as you can see here from this, from this image from my book, there is a huge amount of diversity in our peoplehood, which is again a thing for us to, to celebrate and honour. Of course, as we know, people can join the Jewish people, people can convert. And though someone converts to Judaism, the religion, they're also joining our peoplehood. And despite our clear history, despite really our quite clear identity in terms of our roots at the very least, the non-Jewish world continuously tries to define Jewish identity. So this is where we're going to root our conversation. And again, we're not going to be passive actors in our own story. We get to define our identities. We get to tell our stories and describe our experiences. So diving right in now, what is Jew hate? So we're very lucky and we have the IRA definition. So IRA is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, an intergovernmental organization which is really mandated to deal with Holocaust memory and tackle Jew hate. And they've created this working definition, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. And it's proven to be very controversial. It's proven to be very controversial because it points out when people are anti-Jewish and there are people who don't want that pointed out, of course. And they have defined it in this way. So they've said anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred toward Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed towards Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and or their property towards Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. So IRA has about 11 examples of things that can be considered um, examples of Jew hate. And I really encourage you to familiarize yourself with it. And the reason this is so important is because as we just saw, the non-Jewish world continuously tries to define Jewish identity and our experience. And because of that, there can be confusion about what is and what is not considered Jew hate. So having this working guide is really important. And the, again, a kind of a crucial word there is working. This document, this, this definition was meant to evolve. It's not set in stone. So it should be, as it is currently, always rooted in our reality. 
So you may notice that the title does not use the word anti-Semitism. I've not used the word anti-Semitism apart from describing Ira's work. And I want to explain why I no longer use the word anti-Semitism kind of in a professional capacity. And obviously I want to, I, I want to acknowledge and I understand that this is the word that exists to describe Jew hate. So it's the word that most people are familiar with. But if we dive into the roots of the word, the origins of the word, we see that they were actually designed to harm Jews. This word was designed to wound us, to other us. So this emerged that was coined in 1879 by Wilhelm Marr in Germany. And it was during a time of kind of rising Jew hate, which was really in response to the emancipation of the Jews that had happened in the German Empire just about eight years previously. So this was really an anti-emancipation movement. And they wanted to show that the Jews were other. The Jews could not integrate into German society, even if they wanted to, because of something called race theory. Now, anti-Semitism as a word is rooted in the pseudoscientific race theory. It was meant to legitimize Jew hatred and it would replace the older, more traditional form of the Juden Haas. But the word, if we look at the middle, Semitic, that referred to Semitic languages. So like Hebrew, Aramaic, Amharic, they're all Semitic languages. There are no Semitic people. So there are only Semitic languages. But these people at this time, these kind of pseudoscientific race theory um, followers, they said that if one speaks a certain language, then we can infer certain things about their biology, because language at that time was really a, a huge signifier of belonging. So we see here this word being used to biologically um, other us. It's, it's a form of racism. And I think that we should not necessarily be using a word to describe our experiences that was designed in this way. Now, again, of course, I know that other people do use it and that's fine. I'm just explaining why you will not hear it in this presentation unless I'm quoting someone else. So Jew hate, the same soup, different bowl and a constant thread. So this is a nice little image I got from Google Images of noodles from Hong Kong. Because one of my students in my class in Hong Kong a couple of years ago came up with this phrase, this idea that really perfectly describes the kind of thread of Juhi. And they said it's the same soup, different bowl, meaning the content is always the same. The soup is always the same, but the bowl changes depending on who is expressing it. And this is the most important thing for us to understand with regards to Jew hate. There is a constant thread that connects examples of Jew hate 2,000, 2,500 years ago and the examples of Jew hate today. There are some people who like to talk about new anti-Semitism, new Jew hate. I don't really believe that any Jew hate is new. I believe it's just a modern manifestation of ancient ideas. So the same soup, different bowl is really important and it represents this constant thread. And this is what we're going to explore in this section. So we're going to explore the kind of main ways that Jews are othered and how these threads connect historically and to our own experiences today. So I have broken up um, categorizations of Jew hate into four different ways. The first three, I can't take credit for. I was inspired by Anthony Julius, who is a great lawyer and author in the UK. And I have added a fourth, which we'll get to. So the first three, they're his, so I can't take credit for that. And it's economic libel. Now, I can't see any of you, of course. I can only see my presentation. But just think for a second. Have any of you heard the idea that Jews are obsessed with money? Quick coffee drink. I'm sure you have. I'm sure this is something that we're all familiar with because this is really the most common. And this is probably the libel that is most true to its original form. It has kind of manifested the least. 
But let's look at it. So as I said, it's the accusation that Jews are obsessed with money. And it's rooted in the ancient idea that Judas sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Now that set in motion this idea that Jews will do anything for money, anything for a buck. We're not loyal to other people. We have no morals. All we're interested in is gaining and gathering resources. And the Nazis eventually extrapolated on this idea and said, money is the God of Jews. And it's really all wrapped up in the same idea. But how did it manifest historically? Historically, Jews were funneled into professions that dealt with money. So there were laws that barred Jews from doing certain jobs in the Middle Ages in Europe. So they couldn't own land, they couldn't be merchants, say. And there was also a ban on Christians engaging with usury, which is the act of lending money with interest. So Christians were barred from that, Jews were barred from other professions, and they also had kind of fairly high levels of literacy and numeracy. So they were funneled into professions that dealt with money. So that led to a fairly high involvement of Jews in financial services, although super, super important. Jews never dominated this field. You know, when we're talking about the Jewish community in England in the Middle Ages, we're talking about a few thousand people. We're not talking about 250,000 people that exist in Britain today. So we're talking about very small numbers of people because even though Christians were barred from usury, many Christians broke those rules and still engaged in this act because it was a way that they could make a living. So this led to Jewish people being kind of the face of these financial services, even though, again, they never dominated the field. And it led to the specific strand of Jew hate focused on Jewish money, Jewish economic exploitation, and it involved into the court Jews. And these were Jews who ran the finances of the European lords and kings. And, you know, these were Jews who, in certain circumstances, absolutely could amass a fortune. They could have a certain amount of power and influence. But as we'll see, they were still Jews living in a non-Jewish world. So their financial privilege didn't help them escape Jew hatred. And there were cases of Jews who were murdered after the Lord and King they specifically worked for, they died. So they were still in a very kind of um, tenuous situation and a very precarious situation. But how does this manifest today? So we have economic conspiracy theories. We have Rothschild. Today we have Soros, which is very, very popular. And we see this one specific one, the Jews finance the slave trade. Now, this was spread by Louis Farrakhan in a book from the early 90s called The Secret Relationship Between Blacks and Jews. And this is where he first stated the lie. And it is a lie that the Jews finance the slave trade. This is not true. It is not true at all. Non-Jewish historians, non-Jewish experts on the slave trade have investigated it. And they said, yes, while Jews were involved, they did not dominate the field and they did not finance it. And again, this is an accusation of Jews using this desire to gain you know, economic resources and the kind of degradation, the humiliation, the oppression of another people to do so. So this is an example of that. And we see this spread, particularly in online discourse. Jews are accused of being greedy and being wealthy and obsessed with money. And I've got a very short anecdote to tell you from when I was 13. So I was 13 and I was in Glasgow. I was walking home from school when I was, I guess, in my first or second year of high school. And I was walking with a non-Jewish friend and we passed a row of shops. And my friend said to me, Ben, can I borrow some money? And I thought, I don't have any money. And he said to me, but you're Jewish. 
Now, I think this story is so fascinating because it really lets us into something very important. This is so deeply embedded. My friend was also 13 years old. He was not a racist. He did not hate Jews, but he had absorbed the idea that Jews were wealthy from somewhere, from his family, presumably from culture. So that story really helps us understand just how deeply embedded and really systematic and systemic Jew hate is. Now, another example is the very tragic, very devastating murder of this young man, Ilan Halimi. So in 2006, Ilan was kidnapped by a gang called the Gang of Barbarians. And they specifically targeted Ilhan because he was Jewish. Ilan's family were Moroccan immigrants, Jewish Moroccan immigrants to France. So they were very poor. They were not well off. But Ilan was kidnapped and the kidnappers asked for a huge ransom of 450,000 euros. And the family could just, they just couldn't pay. And when this was relayed to the kidnappers, the kidnappers said, go ask the synagogue. Now, eventually no money came, no money was found. And after three weeks of being mutilated and tortured beyond recognition, Ilan's naked body was dumped at the side of a road and he died en route to hospital. Now, the anniversary of his passing was just a few weeks ago, and this is a major example of the dangers of economic libel, because there are some people who say, well, we're just saying you're wealthy, we're just saying you're privileged, what's the problem? All of this is the problem. It frames us as immoral, it makes us vulnerable to attack because of economic exploitation, and in the case of Ilan and so many others, it has resulted in our murder. So that is the first kind of categorization of Jew hate, economic libel. Now, on to the second, blood libel. Now, this is probably the, the example that has changed the most today on the surface. So historically, it was the accusation that Jews murder non-Jewish children, specifically around Pesach, Passover, to use their blood in ritual sacrifice, even though in the Torah, it forbids Jews from engaging with blood. So we can't ingest blood. But, you know, fact means nothing to those who are kind of disseminating and spreading Jew hate. And this took on a much deeper significance or the idea of blood libel took on a much deeper significance with the idea that the Jews murdered Jesus. So the Romans murdered Jesus, that is a historical fact. But about 350 years after Jesus was crucified, the Romans converted to Christianity. So the man that they murdered about 350 years earlier, they now consider to be their Lord and their God. So what happened? They had to find a new scapegoat and they settled upon the Jews. And this really embedded this idea that the, the Jews are immoral. The Jews, like again, we see that word immoral from economic libel. The Jews are immoral. The Jews will do anything to get ahead. The Jews are kind of the center of evil because if we could murder Jesus, who is good and pure and holy, then we could do any kind of other unspeakable act, including murder children. So how has this manifested throughout history? Well, we have the first case in Europe was in 1144 in England and Norwich. And then we have countless cases in, in Europe, in Spain and in, in France, many other places. We also have a very important example here from 1840 from Damascus. Now, there is this incorrect notion that Jew hate only targeted Jews who lived in Europe. 
So the Sephardic Jews, the Ashkenazi Jews, this isn't true. Wherever Jews have lived, they have been targeted with Jew hate. And the Sephardic Jews, the Mizrahi Jews who lived in North Africa, lived in the Middle East, they were also experiencing their own pogroms. They were also experiencing their own accusations of blood libel. We're going to go back to Europe, to Ukraine, actually, with the murder of Andrei Yashinsky. So those are more historic ideas. These are more historic, more traditional expressions of blood libel. But how is it expressed today? And this is, remember I said, probably looks the most different on the surface. So we have one here, Jews are accused of spreading COVID-19. And the accusation that Israel trained the US police that murdered George Floyd. So what they're doing is basically, and this is why these are examples of blood libel, what they're doing is they're blaming an evil, whether it's anti-Black racism, whether it's COVID-19, on the Jews, because there is this idea that because we murdered Jesus, that we are capable of committing any kind of other unspeakable act. So anything bad can be blamed on the Jews. We even saw it the other day with AOC saying Palestinian children are in cages in, in the West Bank. That is just not true. It's factually incorrect. And the reason it's blood libel is because it's framing Jews as being hyper evil, hyper um predatorial to the non-Jewish world, that we are a predator. So that is blood libel. And this, again, is probably the one that's the most difficult to spot today. But if we understand that it's saying we're evil, then we see it expressed in a number of different ways. So the third type, conspiracy fantasy. So this is really the idea that Jews seek to control the world and or world events for our own benefit. So we see here an image and we have the UK, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, CIA, Israel, Boko Haram, all um, drinking from the teat of the Rothschilds. So a lot of the economic libel has blended with conspiracy fantasy. But we have to understand actually, conspiracy fantasy has been around for a really long time because accusations that Jewish communities are getting together to decide which non-Jewish child to kill with blood libel, that is also an accusation of conspiracy. But modern conspiracy fantasy really became solidified with the publication of the Protocols of the Learned Elves of Zion in 1903. Now, this is, my, this is a document many of you may be familiar with. And this really was a, Tsarist, a piece of Tsarist propaganda from the Russian Empire. And it really said that anything happening in the world that was considered bad, we're going to blame it on the Jews. It was framed as being the minutes of 24 meetings that Jewish elders held in a Basel or Prague, depending on who you ask, graveyard. And it really is not subtle. So one of the quotes is, we're the sheep, uh, we're, sorry, excuse me, we're the goyim are the sheep and we're the wolves. So again, it's kind of reinforcing this predator relationship between Jews and non-Jews. And it blames the Enlightenment, it blames the French Revolution on the Jews. And again, this is the idea that anything bad in the world, anything you don't like, we can attribute it to the Jews. So how has it manifested? So the Jews in Britain, my own community, we were accused of smearing Jeremy Corbyn. So Jeremy Corbyn was the former leader of the Labour Party, who is a racist, and he actively targeted the Jewish community. And we, when we fought for ourselves, we fought for our rights to be British Jews, we were accused of smearing him, getting together with, getting together with Israel because we don't want him in power because A, he's very critical of Israeli policy, and B, because he's going to implement a higher rate of tax, which is again an example of economic libel. Israel is accused of perpetrating 9-11 and this is a piece of graffiti we can see in this image here from the UK from London that says 9-11 under a star of David. 
Jews are accused of controlling media, wars, government, even the weather. So again, anything you don't understand, anything you don't like, we can blame it on the Jews. And again, here we see Jews being accused of spreading COVID-19 because although I've categorized them in separate ways, one example of Jew hate can be all of these. So there's a lot of organic movement here. So it's not just one little, you know, one little neat specific category. We've also seen George Soros being accused of being behind the Black Lives Matter protest. Now you're probably noticing here, there's huge amounts of contradiction. George Soros, or Israel, excuse me, is accused of training the police that murdered George Floyd. But George Soros is accused of being the Black Lives Matter protest. These two positions really are incompatible if you're really seeing them as blaming these events on the Jews. But this is not about rationale. It's not about logic. It is almost inherently contradictory because it's really just helping the non-Jewish world understand the events that they see unfolding. They use Jews to understand their world and it has no relationship with our reality. So this is the last categorization of Jew hate. Excuse me, having a sip of coffee. And this is really my offering to these categorizations. So this is really important. So though Jews are not a race, Jews are racialized. So this is really based on the work of Dr. Geraldine Heng, an Asian American professor, who said that Jews are racialized. So let's think about what that means. Our genetics, our ancestry, our faces, our bodies, our noses, our hair, ideas of our bodies like horns, they're all accusations or demonizations of perceptions of the Jewish body. So that is why Jews experience racism. And there's a lot of confusion about this. I think particularly in America, because America has quite um, specific ideas of race and racism. But in Britain, in Europe, anti-Jewish hatred is considered to be a form of racism. And I believe it should be as well in America, because again, this is often about our physical biological characteristics or perceptions of. But let's look at how ideas of Jewish blood or Jewish ancestry have been targeted. So they were targeted in England in the Middle Ages. So Dr. Geraldine Heng says that England was the first racist state in the West and that state targeted Jews. We also saw it with the Sephardic Jews who even after they converted were still targeted for having dirty blood. So that was both a religious and a racial form of Jew hate because they actually couldn't really convert out of their Jewishness, could they? They were still accused and the 1506 Lisbon massacre took place after the forced conversion of Jews. And as we kind of mentioned with the word anti-Semitism, these ideas became solidified as race theory in the 19th century, which was a kind of pseudo-scientific interpretation of Jewish blood. And it was used by the Nazis. And again, to stress the point, racism originally targeted Jews along with other people, of course, but the pseudo-scientific race theory that really created modern ideas of racism and race they specifically targeted Jews. And some of the first times the word racism was ever mentioned was in regards to the policies of the Nazis towards Jews. So it's an example of erasive Jew hate, which is a, a form of Jew, a subcategory of Jew hate, excuse me, that I coined a couple of years ago. And it's just our identity, our experiences totally erased by the non-Jewish world. But 
it also targets our bodies are also racialized. So we have depictions of Jews based on their physical appearance emerging in the 13th century. And again, I mentioned it was our noses, it was perceptions of our smells, it was perceptions of Jewish horns, it was our posture, it was our hair, it was our genitalia, it was everything. Every aspect of the Jewish body is racialized and they're racialized like other minorities. And that's something really important because there are similarities here. And why is this important? Well, firstly, because it's targeting us and it harms our self-esteem and imposes shame onto us. You know, for a period, rhinoplasty nose jobs were deemed as being a Jewish rite of passage. That's really horrifying to me. Now, everyone, of course, is free to do what they want with their own bodies. It's not about us judging. But the idea that, you know, surgically altering our faces was deemed so normal is worrying. If it was the same conversation about, you know, the black community lightening their skin or the Asian community engaging in double eyelid surgery, I think that we would recognize that those were forms of internalized prejudice based on the kind of hate that swirls around people in society. And I think that we have to understand these trends in our own community in the same way. And ultimately, you know, when we see depictions of Jews, they're not Jews like Barbara Streisand. They're not Jews like Gal Gadot, who are kind of objectively gorgeous. These, if you notice the images that I've been showing you all along, they all kind of look the same and they're all physically repulsive. And the reason that Jews are depicted this way is because our physical features, our ancestry as well, is perceived as being representative of our perceived worst character traits. So because of they say, well, you the economic libel and the blood libel and, and conspiracy fantasy, that is all expressed in your outward physical appearance. So the question is, what do these libels really say about Jews? Because, excuse me, because in some ways they seem quite different on the surface. They don't necessarily seem to be the exact same, but if we go a bit deeper, we all say they're basically saying the same thing about Jewish people. And they're really saying that Jews are the center of evil. So these libels demonize us, they dehumanize us, and they really say that we are Satan incarnate. We are the devil. And we can see that is why Jews are accused of having horns. That is why the Talmud has been represented as the devil's recipe book, because this is the role that we play. Although this targets real Jewish people, like many of us in this call, myself included, of course, this has nothing to do with us. This is not our problem. This is a non-Jewish problem that is imposed onto us because it's about perceptions of Jews. I'm sure when you're reading, when you're going, when we're going through these slides, many of you are thinking, they're saying this about me, but this doesn't reflect my reality. And you're right, it doesn't in any way reflect our reality. This is about non-Jewish perceptions of Jewish people. Now, for those of you who know me, I know there's a couple of people in this call who know me, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. And this I think is a really fantastic analogy to helping us understand the roles that Jews play to the non-Jewish world, while helping us understand some of those contradictions I mentioned. So in Harry Potter, in book three, The Prisoner of Azkaban, JK Rowling describes a kind of mythical creature called the Bogart. Now the Bogart is this magical creature and no one knows what it looks like because it lives in cupboards, it lives in dark, damp places. And when someone sees it, it takes the form of whatever that person fears most. So for me, it might be spiders. For Ari, it might be snakes. That is the role the Jew plays in the non-Jewish world. We represent whatever they fear most. Let's look at an example. The right, the far right, say the Jews are not white. We're not white and we're using our economic, we're using our conspiracies to come and bring down the white race. The left 
say the Jews are white, that Jews represent white privilege, and that Jews are actually the apex predator in this great pantheon of oppression. Those are inherent contradictions. And it's because Jews represent the Bogart, we're capitalist, we're communist, we're rich, we're poor. We represent whatever the person discussing us fears most. And this is why Jewish people must define our own identities, because the people who are defining our identities for us, often they hate us. And as we're going to see, Jew hate is deeply embedded in the non-Jewish world, and as we've seen thus far. So non-Jewish perceptions of Jewish identity are illegitimate because they're so often based on hate. The only people who get to define Jewish identity are Jewish people. But understanding the Bogart, understanding the role that Jews are assigned is really important to understanding the question of why the Jews. Because all of these fantasies, all of these libels have created this idea have primed the non-Jewish world to see us in this way. So there are those who argue, excuse me, there are those who argue that racism is prejudice plus power. So only those in positions of power over others can be racist. So in this sense, it's kind of like a punching down type of prejudice. So per, uh, persecuting marginalized groups with less or no power. Now, although there are definite parts of Jew hate which are punching down, which say that Jews are inferior. You know, this was a large part of Nazi propaganda. There's also a part through economic libel, through blood libel, and through conspiracy fantasy that purposefully frames Jews as powerful. We are perceived as being the apex predator. So this stops people understanding that Jew hate is a kind of real form of racism, a real form of prejudice, because they say, well, you know, we're not saying that you're, you're less than, we're saying that you're a, a powerful and privileged and, and an oppressor. We have to broaden our understanding of prejudice. Prejudice manifests in different ways. And some groups can be targeted through different ways, as we saw with the contradiction. So there is a punching down element to Jew hate, but there is also a punching up element. And this is not necessarily, you know, the way to see Jew hate, but I think it's important because I think it helps us understand one of the reasons that people erase the fact that Jew hate exists. Again, erasive anti-Semitism, erasive Jew hate, our experience and identity is erased. So despite being an ancient problem, Jew hate is just as prevalent today. And I think we're all experiencing, we're all kind of aghast that we're experiencing some of the worst Jew hate in living memory, at least in my lifetime. This is every year it gets worse and worse. And again, though there are those who talk about new anti-Semitism, new Jew hate, I think that we should reject that notion. Because to understand why these problems exist today, we have to understand our history and understand these threads. And of course, understand the fact that these evolve, these mutate, they fit the zeitgeist, but at their core, it's the same soup, different bowl. So we're going to briefly go through some modern examples of Jew hate. So we'll look at right wing very briefly. But I have to be totally transparent here. Most of my personal work focuses on the left because I'm a British Jew. And up until I joined Twitter, leftist Jew hate was the only kind of Jew hate I experienced. But we will talk about rights because we're equal opportunity Jew hate fighters. We're not going to focus on it from one community or another. We're going to call it out whenever and wherever it exists. So the far right views, so that's to say still views Jews as non-white usurpers who are trying to bring down white society. Jews will not replace us 
was chanted at Charlottesville in 2017. The 2018 Pittsburgh shooting was carried out because of this idea. They said this organization, HIAS, was bringing immigrants into white America to bring it down. Jew hate is one of the primary tenets of white supremacy. And often in modern America, this fact is erased. And Jews, because some of us are, can be perceived as white, some of us can pass, are perceived as being part of the oppressor class, part of the problem of white supremacy. Jew hate is one of the central tenets of white supremacy. We have to understand that. That is absolutely crucial to understanding modern right-wing Jew hate. And these are some examples from Australia. In January 2020, a student's workbook was vandalised with a swastika and the words dirty Jew were written on them. And graffiti in December 2020 said Jews should be ashamed. And here we have an image from the members of the Nationalist Socialist Movement, one of the largest neo-Nazis group in the US, holding a swastika burning rally at Drake in Georgia in 2018. Now, the thing that is almost quite difficult about now differentiating, differentiating between left-wing and right-wing Juhi is because of the internet. So many of these forms are, are blending together. So traditionally, let's give an example of that. So traditionally, we have the right saying, Jews are our misfortune. This was a phrase coined by Trichka in the 19th century. The Jews are our misfortune. That was blazoned on the cover of almost every, uh, every edition of Der Stummer, the Nazi magazine. So that was traditionally a right-wing idea. Anti-Zionism, which we'll get to, is traditionally a left-wing idea. But we saw in recent years far-right groups in Germany saying Israel is our misfortune. So we're seeing a blending. We're seeing a blending of traditional right-wing Jew hate and traditional left-wing Jew hate. So let's talk a little bit about progressive and modern, progressive and, and left-wing modern Jew hate. So there is this idea that this is only focused on Israel that the left is a problem with Jews because of Israel. It's not true. There has been an anti-Jewish element in much leftist ideology since its origins. And this quote from Eureka Marie Meinhof, who was the co-founder of the Red Army faction from Germany in the 1970s said this, it's very important. Auschwitz meant that six million Jews were killed and thrown on the waste heap of Europe for what they were considered money Jews. Finance, capital and the banks, the hardcore of the system of imperialism and capitalism, had turned the hatred of men against money and exploitation and against the Jews. Anti-Semitism is really a hatred of capitalism. Now, that is a trend because of economic libel, because of conspiracy fantasy that we see running through leftist ideology. Not all parts of the left, of course, but it is definitely there. So this idea that, again, the left only has a problem with, with Israel is not true. It has been there for a very long time. But let's look how it manifests today. So there is this idea that the left is the moral side of the argument. And therefore, they are not capable of being prejudiced. They can't be misogynistic and they certainly can't be anti-Jewish. We have to get out of our heads the notion that anyone is immune from prejudice. As we said, we call out Jew hate from whenever and wherever it exists. We're equal opportunity fighters here. So it can come from the left. It can come from the right. Because no community, whether they're moral or not, whether they're a minority or not, is immune to Jew hate. 
So how has it manifested? So again, labour under Corbyn. This was a very traumatic experience for the British Jewish community, where we really saw our place in the United Kingdom threatened by this very extreme form of left-wing Jew hate under Jeremy Corbyn. And we, I've got to say, embodied Jewish pride and successfully saw the threat of Corbyn off, at least with regards to him coming to power. But the problems that he created are still being felt in Britain and indeed the rest of the world. Of course, there's Jew hate on campus. This is something many of us are concerned about. This idea that Jewish students go to university, they go to college, and they are targeted with BDS. They're targeted with left-wing Jew hate. But we have to understand that academic academics, that was a mixture between academia and academics. Academics have long been a major source, a major conduit for Jew hate. And in the 19th century, you know, there were militant, violent fraternities opening up at German universities that aimed to exclude Jews from student life. Now, that sounds mighty similar to what we're seeing today with Jewish students on campus and how they are treated. So Black Lives Matter organization, not necessarily the movement, but the organization itself has taken positions that are anti-Jewish, such as, you know, making a binary choice in their support for the Palestinians, as opposed to supporting both the Israel and the Palestinians in pursuing peace. They superimpose the, the kind of black, white racial binary of the United States onto Israel and the Palestinians, which I've got to be honest, is a form of cultural colonialism. I don't care who is doing it to impose your understanding of the world, your view of the world onto a foreign situation that has zero to do with you is arrogant and it's a form of cultural uh, colonialism and it's a form of left-wing Jew hate and accusations of pinkwashing. Now, pinkwashing is the idea that Israel purposely raises up its record on LGBTQ plus rights to act as a distraction from what it's doing to the Palestinians. Now, I can say that Israel is not a perfect state, but it is the safest place in the Middle East to be a gay person, an LGBTQ plus person. Tel Aviv is the place where I feel most comfortable in the world. I feel most safe as a gay Jew. So accusations of pinkwashing are an attack on nuance, first of all, totally an attack on nuance, but also attacking my identity as a gay Jew and the realities of being a gay Jew in Israel. And the fact that Israeli LGBTQ plus people have fought very hard for the rights that they have. And though their struggle is not over yet, Again, it is the safest place in the Middle East to be an LGBTQ plus person, much safer than the West Bank or Gaza Strip, of course, where it's illegal and LGBTQ plus people face enormous amounts of oppression. So one of the modern conduits of Jew hate, one of the modern expressions of Jew hate is anti-Zionism. This is probably the, along maybe with Holocaust denial, is one of the post-Holocaust forms of Jew hate. But like we did at the beginning, before we talk about anti-Zionism, we have to talk about Zionism because, again, only Jews get to define Jewish experience, Jewish identity. Zionism is the movement of self-determination to return the Jewish people to their indigenous homeland. That is what it is. It was created by Jews for Jews. And while, yes, it was an expression of 19th century kind of context with the, adv you know, the advocacy for a modern nation state, Zionism has always been a part of the Jewish experience. When we were in exile in Babylon, we said, you know, we want to return to Jerusalem. May our, may our tongue get stuck to the roof of our mouth if we forget Jerusalem. Then we said, next year in Jerusalem. In the West, we pray towards Jerusalem. So Zionism, the return, the yearning of the return of Jews 
to our indigenous land has always been there. That is what Zionism is, and that is the thing that only Jews get to define. Anti-Zionism, on the other hand, or let me just show you this very quickly. So this is from Cordoba, Spain in Andalusia. And it's from a synagogue and it says this minor sanctuary has been refurbished by Yitzhak Machab, son of the wealthy Ephraim in the year 5075. May God remove curses from our nation and speedily rebuild Jerusalem. This is 700 years before the advent of Zionism as a modern political concept. We have been yearning, we were yearning to return to our indigenous land forever from the minute we were expelled. But now let us look at anti-Zionism. So this was created really by the Arab world, the USSR, and then picked up by the new left in Europe. And it created post-Shoah anti-Zionism that framed Israel as the center of colonialism and imperialism. And they, as this image suggests, they connect it to Nazism. It is a post-Holocaust form of hate. And I will not debate this. I will not debate certain things about the Jewish experience. We have to have boundaries. I will not debate whether the Holocaust happened. And I will also not debate whether anti-Zionism is a form of post-Holocaust hate. And even though the, the Soviet Union said, hey, listen, we're not anti-Jewish, we're just anti-Israel for a number of reasons, including the fact that they want to stamp out nationalist movements at home in the Soviet Union, they utilized classic anti-Jewish tropes. Let's just draw our, our eyes down this image to the latter quarter. We see people carrying the swastika, Star of David uh, collab, let's say. Look at their faces. Look at their noses. This is classic anti-Jewish tropes. And the word Jew was scored out and the word Israel was written in its place. Now, of course, we can legitimately criticize Israel in the way that we would any other country fairly. You can fairly criticize Israeli government policy. And that is not what anti-Zionism is. Anti-Zionism is not criticism of policy. It is the delegitimization of the idea of a Jewish state. So let's look at a practical tool at how we you what of, of something we can use to understand where something is an example of anti-Zionism or not. So we have to ask, and this was created by Natan Sharansky, who is brilliant, and it's called the 3D test. And he says we should ask: does the statement in question demonize Israel? Does it delegitimize Israel? And does it treat it with double standards? And if the answer is no, then it can be perceived as legitimate, fair criticism, even if we don't like it, even if it's harsh. But if it says, yes, it demonizes, yes, it delegitimizes, and yes, it treats it with double standards, then it can be seen as an example of anti-Zionism, which is a form of post-Holocaust hate. A major part of the anti-Zionist movement is BDS, and it's a racist movement towards Jews. It targets Israel and only Israel, and it contravenes the IRA definition of anti-Semitism. And listen, it is not inherently anti-Jewish to boycott Israel. You could boycott Israel and every other country locked in a territorial dispute, including Turkey and Cyprus, including China with Tibet, including um, many, many others. Russia, of course, how topical, but it doesn't. We have to deal in our reality and the BDS movement targets Israel and only Israel. And it really stokes up this anger across the world against Israel. And it treats Israel as the collective Jew, like the Jewish student organizations in the 19th century. They want to exclude Jews from, from student life. The BDS movement wants to exclude Israel from the international arena. It wants to reframe it as a pariah state. And Omar Barghouti, one of the founders, has said definitely most definitely we oppose a jewish state in any part of palestine no palestinian 
rational Palestinian, not a sellout Palestinian, would ever accept a Jewish state in Palestine. So what Omar Barghouti is saying is that he's not for a two-state solution. He's not for you know, establishing a Palestinian state alongside Israel, which by the way exists. We're not talking in hypotheticals any longer. Post-1948, there is a Jewish state which exists. So when they say we oppose a Jewish state in any part of Palestine, they are calling for the ethnic cleansing, the destruction of a state. No other country in the world is treated this way. No one is calling for America to be dismantled or Germany or Britain or China. No one does that. It's only Israel. Another major form of kind of post-Holocaust hate, which is really related to Holocaust denial, is Holocaust distortion. We've all seen these badges that people who are anti-vax are wearing, and it's an appropriation of our pain, it's appropriation of Jewish victimhood, and it's revolting, quite frankly. And then again, we see here on the right, like we saw with the Soviet Union, the flag of Israel decorated with swastikas. And you know, might, you may notice that these images are taken from all over the world. This is not a European problem. It's not a British problem. It's not an American problem. It is a global problem that the world needs to wake up to and address. So this is very, just very briefly, another post-Holocaust form of hate. Even the idea that the Holocaust is being de-Jewified, even the idea that people can write entire articles about the Holocaust and not once reference Jews. And I'm going to tell you, I'm that nerd who does control F, control F in these articles to see if they mention the word Jews. And it's honestly shocking how many do not, not even referencing Jews, not even referencing anti-Semitism or Jew hate in articles about the Holocaust. Now, this is the form of Jew hate, or the, the subcategory of Jew hate that I coined in 2020, erasive Jew hate, where the non-Jewish world erases our experience and identity. This is a screenshot from a real BBC debate that took place in March 2021. The BBC debated Jewish identity on live television. They asked, should Jews count as an ethnic minority? Should Jews count as an ethnic minority? This is appalling that the non-Jewish world was debating our identity. And though the final solution, the Holocaust, was the Nazis' attempt to end the Jewish question for, for good, they failed. Obviously, they failed because we're still here as Jews fighting, but they even failed with regards to the Jewish question. This is the Jewish question being played out in the modern world. They're debating our identity. They're debating our role and status in society. It is no different to the 19th century post-emancipatory movements that viewed Jews in the same way, that discussed Jews in the same way. Should Jews count as an ethnic minority? All of these people in this image, none of them are Jewish. One Jew was brought in to discuss this. And they said they felt very uncomfortable. This is a race of Jew hate, and this is a modern subcategorization of Jew hate. And really, what we're seeing is the renormalization of Jew hate. We're routinely, routinely demonized and dehumanized, and the post Holocaust taboo of overt anti Jewish racism is over. Now, some people speak of this, and I've spoken about this, of this post Holocaust glow, this idea that after the Holocaust, the non-Jewish world for a period learned its lesson, the golden age. It was not true. It never happened. At the very least, it was gilded, or at the very most, excuse me, it was gilded. It wasn't gold, it was gilded. The non-Jewish world pushed overt Jew hatred to the fringes of society. It never disappeared. But now it, the taboo is gone and it has rushed back to the centre of society. It's been mainstreamed and it's been re-normalised. 
Yet we saw with the race of Juhi, anti-Jewish racism is often ignored and erased and diminished. And this is a quote from someone who used to work at the BBC from their Twitter. Israel is more Nazi than Hitler. Oh, Hitler was right. IDF go to hell. Pray for Gaza. This was 2014. The writing was on the wall at how things were going. And many of us couldn't see it. Many of us could not believe what could happen. And many of us still can't today. But the most important thing is that Jews wake up to the reality of our situation. An example of this is anti-Jewish attacks rose by 500% in the UK in May 2021. Again, it has been re-normalized. And I want to talk very briefly, kind of bring the conversation back to Jewish people. Excuse me, my coffee is cold now, but it's still doing the job. I want to talk about the impact of all of this on Jews. We're not passive actors in our own story. We're real people who experience the world as Jews and are treated as such by the non-Jewish world. This creates, as it does for all minorities, by the way, this is not specifically about Jewish people. This is all minorities experience these kinds of personal, psychological, physical manifestations of prejudice. So mental health problems, of course, anxiety, depression are very rife. There is research, research that says people who feel shame are more prone to depression, to anxiety. And let us make no mistake, all of this Jew hatred shames Jewish people. That leads us to internalize Jew hate. As, I, as Ari mentioned, that is the topic of my second book. It is actually going to be released in October of this year. So hopefully I'll be back to speak to you about that. And this is a global Jewish problem. This is a widespread Jewish problem because it's rooted in the idea that we absorb non-Jewish definitions, non-Jewish perceptions of Jewish identity and bring them into us. And we feel ashamed of our Jewishness. And most importantly, if we've ever experienced internalized anti-Jewishness, and I'm going to tell you, I have. Absolutely, I have. The most important thing we have to remember is this is not our fault. We are experiencing a well-documented manifestation of deeply embedded racism that also affects other communities. There is confusion about Jewish identity because we have accepted, again, non-Jewish perceptions of the Jewish experience. So there are Jews today who believe this idea that the Jews are just a religious group, which was forced on us by the Europeans in the 19th century, the, early, the late 18th century as well. So we don't even understand our own story. We become isolated physically, emotionally. Of course, there are fears about our physical safety. And Los Angeles saw many physical attacks on Jews in May of last year and beyond. And again, this Jewish question from the 19th century was discussed. And it culminated in the final solution. We have to understand that a modern Jewish question is still being discussed. And the conversation about the whiteness of Jews is a modern Jewish question. Are we white or are we not white? Because it's not about the colour of our skin. It is about the role we occupy or the role we play and the status we occupy in society. That is the conversation on the whiteness of Jews. So when the non-Jewish world discusses this, they're asking, well, what are Jews? How, they, how do they fit in? How do we understand them? As opposed to them understanding us on our own terms. Now, that was the presentation section of, of this event finished. I hope it has been an educational journey. I'm sure many of you are familiar with parts of this, but I hope it has taken you on a journey of learning that has helped you kind of perceive Jew hate from maybe a, maybe a different perspective. So I'm going to stop sharing my screen and I'll hand over to Ari for questions and answers. That was fantastic as always. Um, I know I it's amazing. I've seen this before, but I always learn a lot and am reminded about things that I forgot. And you know, that actually brings us to our first question 
which is something you discussed, but I think it's one thing, I think if any, if everybody could leave away with just remembering this one thing, it would be important because I saw someone ask this in the Q&A section and you already discussed it. And it's about the word anti-Semitism. And if you go to any clubhouse session, everybody will say, well, you know, Arabs can't be anti-Semitic because they're Semites, right? Mm -hmm. And we, someone mentioned in this chat, Arabic is also Semitic language. In your opinion, could it be that anti-Semitism against Arabs? And once again, I think it's important for people to understand and take away that it's a made up word. It has nothing to do with the Semitic people or the Semitic language. It is about a term that was coined in the 1800s to sort of uh, uh, make Jew hatred uh, more appealing and, and, yeah. and, and people to embrace, I guess, Jew hatred in a way they normally wouldn't if they just used the word Jew hate. And so just going back to what you said, this is right. This is why we should actually use the word Jew hate and not anti-Semitism, right? Yeah. Yeah, I believe so. And we can use anti-Jewish hatred, Jew hate, anti-Jewish right. racism. But no, it's firstly, there are no Semitic people. Just as there are no Oriental people, Oriental is a description for furniture and vases. We do not use that to describe people. There are no Semitic people. There are Semitic languages. And regardless whether the roots, and yes, you're absolutely right. Semitic languages are not just Hebrew, uh, Hebrew, Amharic, Arabic, Aramaic, Arabic. But it, the meaning of the word evolved because it was designed, anti-Semitism as a word was designed to specifically le legitimize, intellectualize the hatred of Jews. So there are people who you see it on clubhouses, you said, Ari, we see it online, that Semitic people cannot be, or, or sorry, people who speak Semitic languages, excuse me, cannot be anti-Semitic, cannot be anti-Jewish. It's just not true. No one is immune to this. This is a descriptor. And I think it's one that we should do away with because, you know, you can see over my shoulder the book on Jewish pride. Jewish pride is reclaiming our narrative, not allowing the non-Jewish word to define Jewish identity and to shame us. And again, this was a word used specifically to legitimize a hatred of us and a racial, biological, pseudoscientific othering of us. So no, it is not a word that can also be applied to other experiences, even if those are coming from people who also speak Semitic languages. Right. What they mean is Jew hatred when people use the word. And, and that's why I think sub-publications have taken away the hyphen between anti-Semitism. Yeah. But really what we should be doing is just calling what it is, is just anti-Jewish you know, racism or, yeah. or Jewish hatred. Um, and that actually sort of leads to an, another question here, which I find is interesting. And you talk about internalized anti-Semitism in your lecture right now. Um, and they ask, what role have we Jews played in attracting anti-Semitism? And I, we always hear this a lot. When there's a problem, one cannot solve without admitting that one is part of the cause of the problem. So what do you have to say to people that uh, say, aren't we the problem? Aren't Jews part of this problem? No, we're not. I, as a gay man, do not bring homophobia onto myself. I'm free to define my identity, to live as the way I want to live. And it's other people who have a problem with that. There is a difference between self-criticism and there are things in our community that we can criticize, particularly with regards to LGBTQ plus rights and people. But when we criticize, we're criticizing with love. We want to see progression. We want to see evolution. The idea that we are bringing Jew hate on ourselves is not true. Nothing we do brings Jew hate on ourselves. It can be used as a catalyst. It can be used as an excuse, but those ideas are there already. Let's look at May 2021. We all were, I think, horrified 
by the grassroots uprising that took place globally against Jewish people in response to, inverted commas, the May 2000 war, the May 2001 war between Israel and Hamas. This was a grassroots uprising against Jews. We've seen this before. We saw it in 1933 when the Nazis came to power. The German people had a grassroots uprising against the Jews. We saw it in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania in 1941 after Operation Barbarossa. The Estonians, Latvians, Lithuanians, they beat their Jewish neighbours to death with iron bars and the Nazis watched. These were grassroots uprisings. So what we can see from these three instances is the world is just waiting for an excuse. And yes, sometimes it's wider events like the election of the Nazis or the invasion of the Nazis into the Baltic states, or they can blame it on our own actions and say, look, you caused this. We did not. A Jew is able to be to misbehave or behave as they wish because we're each individual person. But using you know, a Jew who may be problematic to justify Jew hatred is, is a lie. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's fake, it's fake news. We bring nothing on ourselves. We're not perfect, we'll be bring, we bring nothing on ourselves. We are people just minding our business. When we're loud, they hate us. When we're quiet, they hate us. When we're in Israel, they hate us. When we're in diaspora, they hate us. When we're rich, they hate us. When they're poor, they hate us. They hate us full stop because they are primed to see us in a certain way. They're primed to see us as the enemy. So no, I reject that idea entirely that we bring any of this on ourselves. Right, agreed. Um, here's, here's an interesting one. Uh, we often hear that saying, they came for the socialists and I stayed silent. They came for the Jews and I stayed silent. Then there was nobody that left for me. Um, as Dana Horn points out, this instrumenta instrumentalizes Jews, right? This isn't about saving Jews, it's about saving themselves and Jews are just some sort of marker. Um, and in the same regard, uh, we often hear um, you, the non-Jew, right? Should care about anti-Semitism because it means that society is ill. Yeah. But right. Anti-Semitism is ever present. It's, yeah. you know, this also just is this just sort of saying, you know, only care about anti-Semitism because you should care about your own persecution. You know, don't you know, that's why you should care about us, because you may be hurt, but don't really care about the Jews. Absolutely. I hate the idea that the Jews are the canary in the coal mine. Right. I hate it. I hate this idea that a lot of quite serious academics uh, espouse that Jew hate represents the decline of democracy. That might be true, but we matter because we matter. We are human beings and our experience matters. We should not have been oppressed and murdered and ethnically cleansed for literally thousands of years. The lives of Jews today should not be marred by this ancient hatred. We matter as individuals. So yes, you can look at it in that way, but I, I encourage people not to. I encourage people to center Jews in our own stories. And I encourage Jewish people to do that too. Don't feel that we have to justify our discussions on Jew hate by saying, well, you know, look what's gonna happen to the rest of society if you guys don't stand up for us right. they should stand up <laughs> they should stand up for us because we matter as much as anyone else right. and we should demand that same treatment and we're not going to try and justify allyship we're not going to be say and we're not going to beg so i hate that idea and i hate this notion that we're the canary in the coal mine because the canary in the coal mine dies so we have to die to act as a warning it's unacceptable it's it's terrible and it's really dehumanizing we matter because we're human beings right exactly and that almost gets to the next question which is about um you know those people that claim a sort of along the same lines like 
does this mean America is becoming more illiberal, right? But there was anti-Semitism in America throughout history. In the early 1900s, Jews couldn't attend law schools. You know, right now people say, you know, uh, whether it's about policing speech, but we still have free speech and it's still protected. Like America isn't becoming, you know, this illiberal place. There's still laws, still protections. Anti-Semitism was rampant, you know, 100 years ago, and it's still here. Now, I think more than that, right, we are living in an age where the fringe have a voice because yeah. of social media, where everyone has a voice in the zeitgeist. So isn't the issue more about more about when you're talking about the rise of anti-Semitism, perhaps due to social media, more than some sort of illiberalism that is taking hold. And I think that the liberalism kind of definitely contributes, but it has not made the problem. It might be right. intensifying the problem, but the problem exactly, as you say, very much existed beforehand. And absolutely, social media has played a huge part. And technology right. always has. If we look at the printing press, you know, if we look at movies and radios right. used for the Nazis, technology has always been used in this way because it helps spread ideas. And that's one thing I mentioned with regards to left-wing and uh, right-wing Jew hate. They're all moulding. Sometimes I receive hate messages and I'm like, I don't know who's saying this. I can't work it out. Are they left-wing? Are they right-wing? Because social media is allowing ideas to spread. And listen, it has also benefited us. I came to prominence on social media fighting Jeremy Corbyn. I'm speaking to all of you fine people today on a, I guess, Zoom is a social, well, it's on the internet, right? Or it's right. on the, the Wi-Fi. Um, I sound like a hundred when I say that. So social media is very good for us because we connect with each other, but we also have to be very clear, it has been used against us, like everything has. So it's not that social media is the problem, but people are the problem. Um, and absolutely, yeah, it's, social media has definitely enabled Jew hate. I get messages from all over the world wishing me dead. Right. And they can speak directly to 20 me. years ago, that wasn't possible. You know, before no, people to, were sending emails and before everybody could Precisely. They have to find my address and send me a letter in Hong Kong. And who's going to go to that trouble? Now they just have to slide into my DMs and say that I should get run over by a bus. Right. So, yes, social media has played a huge role and it's because it's like the Wild West. It's just totally unregulated, basically. Right. And I actually don't think it's possible to regulate it. This is obviously another conversation, but how do you regulate something like this? It's, it's too huge now. Right. And people hide behind an emoji or an icon that's not even their face behind a real name, and they can say whatever they want with impunity, essentially. But you make a great point because, you know, the elders of Zion, you know, the printing press allows that to be distributed and spread everywhere. You know, sure. 200 years before that, you know, they, they couldn't spread a book like that. Um, so that leads us to another question, which we've been seeing here, which is how do we mobilize Jews in America to care about anti-Semitism? Um, and they say, especially on the left where Jews usually identify. Um, and I think maybe we can connect this one. Another person says, my friends, both Jewish and non-Jewish, accept the lies about Israel being apartheid. Truth does not work. Logic does not work. How do we counter this? So I guess it's how do we start countering anti-Semitism? Well, number one, we spread Jewish pride. I mean, truly, we have to understand that we are deserving of better. We need to understand that we're allowed to advocate for ourselves. Because remember, the non-Jewish world tells us we're not. Keep quiet, sit down, keep your head down. That's what they've told us. And because of that, we've told ourselves that. So we need to understand that we are allowed to advocate for ourselves. In fact, we must. And also, most importantly, we define our own experiences. We define our own identities. So going on that journey of defining your experience, defining your identity, 
takes you to understand Zionism, takes you to understand Jewish indigeneity, takes you to understand the fact that we're a people, not just a religion, takes you to truly engage with Jewish history from a Jewish pride perspective. Because I kind of said this in the beginning, we're in a way, you know, socialized, programmed into only seeing the negative in our history. We talk about the Holocaust, we talk about the pogroms, we talk about the expulsion of Mizrahi Jews and Sephardic Jews from the MENA region. And all those things happened. But we also have to look at our history with pride and see moments of Jewish pride and be inspired by those people when Jews fought back. So just as we're seeing today with Jewish students, Jews in the 19th century, they created their own fraternities to combat these kind of militant organizations that were being formed by German students against them. And it was about self-defense. They were saying, we're going to learn Jewish history on one hand and we're going to work out and become physically strong on the other. We're seeing Jewish students do this today. Isaac de Castro, you know, Blake Flayton, you know, Chloe Santob in Europe, many, many people who are rising to the challenge and saying, no, we're going to reclaim our identity. We're going to tell our own stories and we're going to fight for our right. And I think this is key. German Jews in the 19th century, many American Jews today have absorbed non-Jewish ideas about their experience, their perspective and their identity. And we need to reject those. We need to say, we get to define Jewish identity and experience. And when we start to do that, we then begin the fight against Jew hatred. And, and Jewish pride is a framework. It's a framework for us to look at the world or look through the world. It's a framework for us to look at our history, a way to look today and be like, no, I'm sorry, what AOC said about Israelis putting Palestinian children in cages in the West Bank, it's not true. Here's why it's not true. And we're going to have enough self-esteem to add our voices to the fray to say, you are wrong. And we're not going to allow you to demonize us in this way. So it's really about self-esteem, focusing on Jewish joy, Jewish pride, and knowing that we're allowed to advocate for ourselves. And fundamentally knowing that Jew hate is a non-Jewish problem. It's a non-Jewish problem that impacts us, but it's a non-Jewish problem. And they're the only ones who can really solve it. We can add our voices. We can advocate for ourselves to keep it at bay, but we cannot spend every single kind of ounce of our resources and our energy combating something which we cannot combat, which is why we also focus on Jewish pride, which again, does in fact contribute to that fight. Right. Exactly. I mean, I think when you talk about a race of anti-Semitism, that's what we're really talking about here is Jews defining themselves, standing up for themselves and yeah. not allowing others to define them. And I think that gets to this, this last question or maybe two more. And this one, actually, this one combines two. Um, do you think Jews are a race? And I'm assuming this is because of the Whoopi Goldberg discussion that we've, yeah. we've seen here. Is that good and bad? And then I think this sort of goes along with it in a society in America, at least, that is so focused on skin color as a mark of oppression. You know, how do we add our story to that conversation? So I would say that Jews are not a race. But I would also say that races don't actually exist. Races were invented as a categorization of people by pseudoscientific race theorists. Right. So I, I find it very bizarre in general that we still use this word as a descriptor. And, I, and that's not me disparaging about the, the person who asked this question, because we do, right? We all talk about race, but there's no biological basis for it. It is completely based on, you know, race theory. So I'd say we're not a race, but I'd also say that no one is a race. We can talk about different ethnic groups. Right. We can talk about ancestry, many other descriptors. I think we add our voices to the fray by just adding our voices to the fray, by speaking up and saying, we matter, sorry, Whoopi, you do not get to define Jewish identity. I really don't care about the color of your skin in this conversation. I would say this to a person who is light skin. I would say it to a person who is black, to a person who is Asian. 
I would say you do not get to define Jewish identity. The only people who get to define Jewish identity are Jews. And of course, we know there is diversity. So we know there's Asian Jews. We know that there's Black Jews, of course, Beth Israel. So we have to be having internal conversations. But we add our voices to the fray by just speaking up and by calling it out wherever and whenever we see it. And there's lots of people who don't do that. There's lots of people who say, well, I'm only going to call it out, you know, from those I'm against. No, we have to call it out from our own kind of garden. We have to call it out for the people that we stand with. And Whoopi Goldberg, I'm sorry, she doesn't get to say those things. So we added our voices to the fray by simply doing it. You know, I released a video that morning that was seen 45,000 times. I put it on Instagram and it was shared around the world. Many other people did similar things with tweets and with messages. That's us adding our voices to the fray. And, you know, saying Every minority, every group, not just minority, is allowed to define their own identity, their own experience. And so must Jews. Right. Right. You know, Jews are an ethnicity with a shared history, with a shared religion, with a shared DNA. And when it comes to racism, as you saw, as you say, you know, it's a a made up construct where Jews are sometimes white and then they're not white. Right. Yeah. Jews, anti, using the terminology of, of race uh, leads Jews down a very bad path where we're never going to be accepted by anybody. Um, and that leads me to our last question here, which is, is the only real answer to anti-Semitism still Zionism, right? Is it still Israel? Is it going back to Israel? Is anti-Semitism something that can never be defeated in America or in the West? And, you know, eventually we must go back to Israel, to our own country, to our own land. I'm not going to tell you to make Aliyah. <laughs> I love Israel. I am an Israel stan. I'm a huge Zionist. And it does give me a huge amount of comfort being a Jew in the diaspora. You know, I live in Hong Kong, as you know, and my mother is a widow. My father passed away a few years ago. And when the Corbyn experience was raging, having is knowing Israel was there for her made me feel very, very much safer. Israel is vital, and Israel is a vital component of all of our, should be, in my opinion, all of our Jewish identities, and of course, is a vital component of the modern Jewish pride movement. Each individual person has to make their own decisions. What can we put up with? Because I do fundamentally believe that Jew hate is not going anywhere. I don't think it's ever going to go anywhere. So if we, excuse me, stay in the diaspora, we have to stay in the diaspora understanding the terms of engagement. Right. We have to understand there is deeply embedded Jew hate here. The society is almost inherently oppositional to me and my identity. And if I can put up with that, if I can still see that I want to integrate into the society, I want to be a part of it, which is fine. Then people have to choose to do that. But understand the terms of engagement. And if people say, actually, screw this, I want to go to the land of milk and honey and be walking down, you know, Allenby or that's very weird street in Israel to choose, Diesengoff. Maybe that's better. Maybe that's more well-known and a bit nicer, to be honest. I want to walk down Diesengoff with a falafel in one hand and a lemon nana in another in our own land. Then, yeah, that's legitimate. And I totally understand. And I've got to be honest with you. If my partner isn't Jewish, um, although he works at the Jewish school in Hong Kong, so his life has become very Jewish. Um, and if, if we were not in a relationship, I would have made Aliyah by this point. The reason I haven't is because he has goals of his own. And I believe in fighting for the diaspora. That's just my personal opinion, though. If you want to go to Israel, 
go to Israel. But if you want to stay in the diaspora, stay in the diaspora, but understand the terms of engagement. We're never going to be fully accepted. We're always going to be slightly different. And I think the key to this, embrace our difference. We say this to kids, right? Let your freak flag fly. Be a weirdo. You know, be you. Don't change yourself to be accepted. We are different. We are a distinct civilization, a distinct culture, a distinct, a distinct ethnicity. We should celebrate that. And we can integrate, but we have to understand the terms of engagement. Right. And I think understanding that anti-Semitism is never going to be defeated and that it's ever present and people will, no matter where you go, see us as other is sort of comforting if you embrace yeah. it a bit and understand instead of trying to fight it, fight it, fight it, embracing it and understanding that as part of the story. And I think we are also lucky in that, you know, our generation, a couple generations before our parents' generations, we're fortunate to have Israel. You know, beyond that, our great grandparents didn't have a country named Israel. And uh, I think Jews are more secure in the world today than they have been in over 2000 years. So Absolutely. And, and that's the thing, you know, it's embrace the difference we have. And actually it is freeing because I'm like, I don't care what the non-Jewish world think. I will wear my kippah and I'll obviously be concerned about physical safety, but I'll wear my kippah because I don't care about them defining my identity. I will define my own identity as a Jew. So actually this understanding, understanding the rules of engagement is quite freeing. Right. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us. This was another fantastic discussion. Uh, next week, we have Dr. Not Wilf, who will be discussing the right of return, which has been weaponized and really understanding and unpacking what it really means and how it was created. So please make sure to sign up for all discussions, and you can donate at ccfpeace.com, ccfpeace.com. Ben, thank you so much. You just turned out, but thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining us. There's no one better to unpacking anti-Semitism than you. Um, keep safe in Hong Kong. <laughs> um, hopefully we will see you uh, in America soon and Israel soon. So everybody, please stay safe. Take care of yourselves. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.